You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, you can make your way to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that Greg just mentioned, page 309 is where you'll find uh, that text this morning. Well, maybe the real God uses tricks too, you know? Maybe he's not omnipotent. He's just been around so long, he knows everything. Those are the words of Phil Connors, Bill Murray's character in the 1993 cult classic film Groundhog Day. Anybody familiar with Groundhog Day? Oh, applause for Groundhog Day. Wow. Cult classic, it really is. People love it or hate it or hate it. Uh, If you're not familiar with the movie, uh, Bill Murray plays a weatherman who is forced, he has no desire to do this, he's forced to go out to western Pennsylvania and cover Punxsutawney Phil as he tries to see his his shadow. And as he does that, he gets stuck in this endless loop repeating the same day, Groundhog Day, over and over again. While I would not recommend the movie for its theology, uh, the movie is a great example of deja vu, this phenomenon of deja vu, living and experiencing the same thing over and over again. And in the movie, that, that kind of repetition makes Phil Connors wonder if there's any purpose to life, if there's any real point to, to existence. Are we all just kind of stuck in some kind of endless loop? And maybe you've, you've even found yourself wondering that at some time in your life. Maybe you're wondering that yourself this morning. Are we all just kind of stuck in some kind of pointless, endless loop? We're going to read some of 2 Kings chapter 4 in just a moment. And if you've been with us in this series, if you've been walking through First and Second Kings with us, it's going to feel like deja vu. Elisha's miracles in this chapter have a lot of similarities to Elijah's miracles that we first read about in First Kings 17 some weeks ago. And because of the similarities, actually, there's some scholars who have questioned the authenticity of these accounts. Uh, there's some scholars who, who see this repetition as evidence that the original hearers as they were sharing the stories about Elijah and Elisha and their miracles, they kind of got the details a little bit conflated and confused, and they started attributing some of Elijah's miracles to Elisha and and vice versa. I would ask you to consider this morning instead, what if there is a real beauty and real purpose to the repetition or near repetition of these miracles? And and what if instead of tricks that God is using, as, as Phil Connors puts it in Groundhog Day, What if the deja vu is actually pointing to the advance of the kingdom of God? As we began to see last week, once Elijah is taken up to heaven, God continues his powerful, his prophetic work through Elisha. And God is preserving not only other faithful prophets, but faithful people in Israel. There there is continued, and in some ways we're even going to see this week, increased faith among the faithless. Faith among the people of God, is moving forward. And so listen for the repetition in 2 Kings 4, but I would encourage you this morning, don't see it as deja vu, don't see it as repetition merely for repetition's sake. See it as the forward movement of the mission and purposes of God. Similar miracles through a different prophet are displaying that the same God is still on the move. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 2 Kings Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, 
Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in your house, in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring, an- bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Now let me just summarize then a little bit of verses 8 through 32. We don't have time to read all of them, but certainly would encourage you to do that. Beginning in verse 8, we start to trace the account of this woman from Shunem. And Elisha happens by there. Um, She becomes incredibly generous to Elisha. She provides him food every time he comes through town. She and her husband build him a, a, a room on their roof, on top of their home, that he can stay in with them. And it's really encouraging to Elisha. So he wants to bless her. He wants to thank her for all the ways that, that he's been served. And so he says, what, what, how can we bless you? How could God bless you, Shunammite woman? And she says, you know what? Actually, I'm good. I'm content. I have no, no need right now in my life. But one of Elisha's servants, a man named Gehazi, suggests, hey, she's an older woman. Her husband's older. They have no sons. Why don't we have God provide a son for them? And that's what that's what happens in this text. But some years later, when that, when that child has grown older, out in the field one day, he, it might have been sunstroke, we're not exactly sure, but he falls ill and soon after dies. And this Shunammite woman refuses to accept that and, and, and commits herself to go find Elisha wherever he is and to bring him back to ask God to do something about it. So she goes and finds him at Mount Carmel, Uh, Elisha tries to send his servant Gehazi first ahead of him. Gehazi can't do anything. And so the Shunammite woman stays with Elisha, brings him back to their home there in Shunamm. And that's where we pick up the story right here in verse 32. So this is verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, And his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Verse 38, And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil the stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread from bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give it to the men that they may eat. 
But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, in this text and in all of our time gathered together this morning, we wish to see Jesus. And so we ask now, by the power of your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. In Elisha's miracles here in 2 Kings 4, uh, we see three things that we have seen before. Uh, Things that might feel like deja vu, but are instead evidences of the forward movement of God. So we're going to walk through each of these things with, with our time this morning. Another provision of oil, another resurrection, and another provision of food. So first, let's talk about another provision of oil. Uh, In recent chapters, as we've walked through this series, we've seen that Elijah and Elisha were not the only two prophets in Israel. They're the two primary prophets, but they're not the only ones. There were also, though, schools of prophets or sons of prophets uh, who lived and who ministered faithfully. And so at the beginning of chapter 4 here, we meet the widow of one of those prophets. Her husband feared the Lord. He was, a, he was a faithful worshiper, a faithful servant of the one true God. But we also find out here that he had substantial debt. And now the creditor is coming to collect. But because there's no money to be had, there's nothing to pay off this creditor, her two children, her two sons, are going to become this creditor's slaves. Have you ever felt like this woman? Have you ever felt like this woman? Not that any of us in the room have have specifically experienced the threat of losing our children to to slavery. But there is a very natural, very human question implied in this woman's cry to Elisha. Why does tragedy strike the good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? In In the midst of Israel, this northern kingdom, that at this moment and throughout this book, it's characterized by all kinds of open rebellion against God. There's evil and wickedness everywhere in Israel. Why is the family of one of the few faithful men, one of the few prophets that are faithful to God, why is this family experiencing such a terrible set of, of circumstances? For us, the questions might be more like, why did he get cancer? He was a, he's a good husband. He's a, he's a good dad. His kids are still young. Why did he get cancer? Or why, why did she get in a, in a car accident? She had a great future ahead of her, a college acceptance or a career waiting for her. Why her? These people are doing it right. They're living well. Why is it that these incredible married couples are experiencing infertility when at the very same time thousands of babies are being born into dysfunctional, unstable environments with one or both parents that won't or can't care for them? We really rarely get specific or satisfactory answers to those kinds of questions in our lives. And in this woman's case, her tragedy, this family's tragedy, is compounded by the fact that the the ways that God had prescribed and established to help a family in this kind of desperate need were absent from this story. See, in moments like these, there's supposed to be something called a kinsman redeemer, There's supposed to be a close family member who has some means that in the threat of having to sell your children off to slavery to pay your debts, that kinsman redeemer can step in and pay that debt for you. For for this woman, though, and her sons, 
There's no Redeemer coming. Except that there is. Except that there is. God himself, in this instance, will be the Redeemer. And what we get to see in this text is that tragic and desperate circumstances often become moments for God to display that he is the God of desperate people. That he loves to show up and love and serve and care for desperate people. He's not only the high and exalted one who inhabits eternity, he is the one who dwells with the lowly. He's the one who comes near to those who are, who are crushed in spirit. In the absence of a kinsman redeemer, God will be this family's redeemer. And so Elisha tells her to collect as many empty vessels as possible and to start pouring out the little bit of oil she has. And as we read there, she fills them all. She fills them all. Not only is it enough to pay off the debt, it's enough for her and her sons to go on living off of for some period of time after that. It's like a miraculous life insurance payout. Hey, your debts are now covered, and also here's some stuff to, to live on. Years before, back in 1 Kings 17, Elijah met a different widow in Zarephath. And for her, it wasn't debt, but it was death that lurked very nearby. She was on, when we met her in 1 Kings 17, she was on the verge of starvation. She was gathering up sticks to make her last meal. But the oil for her never ran out. God provided this, this inexhaustible supply to keep her and her son alive in, in famine. And so this provision of oil here in 2 Kings 4 feels like deja vu. And like all the miracles that we're reading about in this chapter, it is demonstrating that the same God who empowered Elijah is now at work empowering Elisha. But I would say to you this morning, look closer. Look closer. We learn so much more about the work of God through this similar yet distinct miracle. God is not simply the one who preserves life in the midst of famine. God is our redeemer. And the oil in this text is not just oil, is it? It's a ransom. It's a ransom. It pays the debt that could not otherwise be paid. It buys these two sons, it buys these two children out of the slavery that they were otherwise helpless to escape. So this is another provision of oil, but it is pointing forward with that much more clarity to the salvation that God will offer us through the work of Jesus Christ. For sinners like us, when there is no other Redeemer coming, Jesus is coming. And when we're helplessly enslaved to sin, when we have a debt that we cannot possibly pay back, Jesus will pay that debt back for us. He will buy us back out of our slavery to sin. The Apostle Peter will go on to write years later, know that you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Maybe we could add oil to that list. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. God's kingdom and God's mission is advancing through this miracle. It is anticipating this beautiful reality that in addition to being our giver and preserver of life, God himself will be our redeemer. God himself will be our ransom. That's another provision of oil. Second, let's talk about another resurrection. Another resurrection. Most of this chapter is tracing out this account of the Shunammite woman. Uh, and I had to summarize it just for sake of time this morning, but really would encourage you later today or this week, uh, read the whole thing in its entirety. There's a lot of stuff in there that we don't get to, to cover today. Uh, especially read it in preparation for discussion with uh, your Bible study groups this week. But this account also feels like deja vu back to 1 Kings 17. The widow there in 1 Kings 17 in Zarephath loses her son, 
But God, through Elijah, brings him back to life. And here, the Shunammite woman receives her son through, through Elisha. But there are some differences in 2 Kings chapter 4. For one, the provision of oil that we just talked about and this resurrection, they happen to two different families, not the same family. So back in 1 Kings 17, it was all one family. Here in 2 Kings 4, two different families. And the Shunammite, as we read, is a wealthy woman. She's a wealthy woman. Most of what we've seen so far in 1 and 2 Kings is God's heart and care for the poor, for the needy, for the desperate. But we're seeing here that God's heart and care is for the well-off too. And and therein lies perhaps, I think, the biggest difference in this miracle. It's that when we meet the Shunammite woman, she's not needy. She's not desperate. When we meet her, she is actually the one who's in a position to give to Elisha. She's the one giving gifts to him. And she does that in the form of food and in the form of, of lodging. And so in this instance, think about this. It's God's gift that makes her needy in the first place. It's, it's God's gift that makes her desperate. As much as she might have longed for a son, she wasn't asking for one. And even when Elisha gives her an opportunity and says, you know what, God wants to bless you for the way you've been kind to me. What can God do for you? She says, I'm okay. I'm content. God's, God's meeting my needs. It's actually Elisha and, and his servant Gehazi's idea to say, well, why don't we have God bless her with a, a son that she wasn't asking for? See, back in 1 Kings 17, God raises from death a son who was already there. When we meet him in the story, he's already there walking around. But in 2 Kings chapter 4, God has to miraculously provide the son in the first place. He gives, and then he takes away, that son dies, and then God gives him back. And the Bible itself is forcing us to to wrestle with a really hard question in this text. Why would God give and then take away? Why at times would God give us things, even things we were not asking for, that make us needy and desperate, that we find ourselves actually more needy and desperate, worse off maybe on the other side of? Why would God do that? A couple years ago, uh, a travel agency reached out to me and asked if I wanted to take an all-expenses-paid tour of the Holy Land um, to go around Israel and, and Jerusalem and see some of the sites that we read about in, in Scripture. This, this group brings pastors and ministry leaders over uh, to the Holy Land in hopes that they'll catch a vision for that kind of trip and then like, bring hundreds of people from their church and their circles back. With, it's a moneymaker, right? So they, they let me go for free so you all can pay. That's, that's how it works. But uh, I could go for free, Shay, my wife, could come too, and all we had to pay for between the two of us was a plane ticket for her. Now, up to that moment, I didn't really have that much of a desire to do a Holy Land tour. I know that probably makes me a terrible pastor, maybe a terrible Christian. I just never had that much of a desire to do it. Some pastors and Christians, this is like the trip that they can't wait their whole life to take, and that's great. I was always more like, that would be cool, I guess, but sure, that's fine. It's funny how an all-expenses-paid trip can change your perspective. Uh, It's funny how an unexpected gift is powerful like that. And so now, you know, getting this news, this invitation, Shay and I get excited, and we make the arrangements with our family to come and and watch our kids while we're gone, and I start to get people to cover preaching and my other responsibilities here. We get all the logistics figured out, and we're ready to go. But do you know when that trip was scheduled? April of 2020. 
Not quite the, the two weeks to slow the spread, a uh, little bad beyond the two weeks to slow the spread, but in those first few weeks that like the world shut down from, from COVID. So needless to say, the trip never happened, still hasn't happened to this day. And now, though I never really had a desire to do a Holy Land tour, I'm left with a sense that I've been robbed of something. I feel worse now than I did if I'd, ever, if I'd never heard about this in the first place. An unexpected gift was given, it was taken away, and I'm not content anymore. Not content. Now, my example is, is way more trivial than, than this woman in, in 2 Kings 4. But do you see how her experience here forces an uncomfortable question? Why would God give a son in the first place? Why would he give her something that she wasn't asking for only so he could put her through the, the sorrow and the suffering and the trial of taking that son away? Sometimes God gives and takes away simply to remind us that he is God. I think that's what was happening for Jonah. If you remember the story of the prophet Jonah and the shade tree plant. Jonah was frustrated with God. He thought God wasn't doing a very good job being God. And so Jonah had to learn some things. He had to be humbled by God. God gave him a shade plant and then, and then took it away. Other times, I think God gives and takes away to expose some things in us that we haven't seen before. And reflecting on it, I think that's what God was probably doing with my, my Holy Land tour. Maybe I'm actually a lot more discontent than I realize. Maybe I'm actually way too quick to, to reorient my life for free stuff. Maybe I'm cheap. And that's just a creative way of God of showing me that I'm cheap. It's probably all of those things. But for the Shunammite woman, perhaps this is God forcing a, a, a kind of dependence that she's never known in her life. As a wealthy woman, maybe she's never known real need. And so maybe God is bringing about a much deeper kind of faith in her that can only come on the other side of desperation. That's certainly what plays out in the rest of the story. She pleads with Elisha and then clings to him and refuses to, to leave him until he comes. But in this instance, it's actually even more than that. It's even more than that. See, in 1 Kings 17, we learn that God is the God of resurrection. And in that first recorded instance of resurrection in the Bible, we saw that that God does not submit to death, but death submits to him. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we are certainly seeing that again. We are seeing that God is the one who has power over death. But look closer. Look closer. We learn so much more about the work of God through this similar yet distinct miracle. Namely, that he is not just the God of resurrection. He is the God who will provide an unexpected son. He is the one who will give and then will take away and then we'll give back through resurrection. Not a whole lot of years after this Shunammite woman's life, the prophet Isaiah goes on to write, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah goes on to write two chapters later, For to us a child is born, to us a son is what? Given. God himself will give a son. It was an unexpected gift when God gave a son. We weren't asking. We were nowhere close to the, to the sense of the kind of need and desperation that, that we had. But God gave his son anyway. And this world and our lives are so much better off for it. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, gave him over to death so that through resurrection he might give him back. And our salvation and the reconciliation of all things in this world depends upon a God who not only raises the dead, but who will provide an unexpected son in the first place. 
And we get to glimpse that a little bit in 2 Kings 4, years before it happened. So there's another provision of oil. There's another resurrection. Third, we see here in this text, another provision of food. Another provision of food. And two of them, actually. Which, given the the gap that exists between our culture and this culture in the ancient Near East, uh, it's hard for us to fully appreciate these miracles. Most of the people who have ever set foot on this planet have spent the overwhelming majority of their time and energy and money providing food for themselves. That's what most of life consisted of for most of human history. How am I going to provide food for myself and my family? Our access to food, our ease of acquiring food is really unprecedented in in human history. And so food was taken far less for granted by other people and other civilizations. Starvation for them was just never that far away. And that's why, at least one of the reasons why, so many of the miracles in the Bible have to do with food. It was a really big deal. It still is a big deal, but it was a really big deal to them. And so in these final seven verses of 2 Kings 4, there are actually eight different mentions of food or or eating. And as we read there in, in verse 38, there is again famine in the land. If you remember back to 1 Kings 17, that was also what was playing out uh, for Elijah when he came on the scene and when he began his ministry. So now with Elisha leading the sons of the prophets and, and at least some of those prophets living communally, living together, one group is, is gathering up all it can find in order to make a, a stew. Unfortunately, one of these prophets unknowingly goes out, gathers a, gathers a vine, he doesn't know what it is. Most scholars think it's a particular kind of wild cucumber that grows in this part of the world. And when eaten, causes, quote, violent purging effects or an extreme type of laxative. Mmm, mmm. The Bible, the Bible doesn't get into that, that detail here, but the Bible's kind of gritty. It gets into, some, gets into some stuff there. So when the prophets start to eat, they quickly realize something's wrong here. It's hard to actually tell from this text if the stew is lethal, like if it actually would have killed them, or if it just is inedible, if you just can't, can't taste it, can't eat it. Probably both. But they cry out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. I think we need to start using that phrase for like church potlucks. We're way too polite with each other. We, we know each other well. Most of us do. You know, we're like, oh, I don't prefer that or it's not my favorite. Let's just go for gold next time. If you find a dish you don't like, there's death in the pot. There's death in the I was actually thinking yesterday, um, this weekend is our men's retreat, Friday and Saturday. We have a chili cook-off every Friday night. And we have three categories for, for chilies. We have spiciest, heartiest, and best overall. But we might need to add a fourth that's called death in the pot as like a <laughs> consolation prize for for whichever one doesn't, doesn't get the other awards. But whether lethal or unpalatable or both, this is a big deal. This is a really big, it doesn't seem like that, it doesn't seem maybe as crazy as the other, or amazing as the other miracles in the Bible. This is a big deal because it's a massive amount of wasted food. And in the midst of a famine, you can't afford that. You can't afford for a whole pot of stew, a huge pot meant to feed a whole group of people to go to waste. They don't have, like, like we do at this moment, we have like four or five restaurants and a grocery store across the street from us. They don't have that. And so God, through Elijah, through Elisha, uh, purifies the stew. He restores it. Last week in, in 2 Kings chapter 2, we saw Elisha use salt to heal the undrinkable water of Jericho. 
Well, here in 2 Kings 4, he uses flour to heal the inedible stew of Gilgal. And then, sometime around then, there's a second provision of food. A man of God brings an offering, the first fruits of his field, 20 barley loaves and some grain. And, and we gloss right over this when we read it. It's just kind of a minor, it seems like a minor detail. But it's incredible to find such a faithful man in Israel in this moment. Think about this. He lives in a town named after a false god. He lives in a town called Baal Shalishah. And this is in the northern kingdom, what, is, what was promised land that God gave to, to his people. It wasn't always called Baal Shalishah. It was renamed that because all the people there are idolatrous and they worship a, a false god now. So there's no faithful offering place in the northern kingdom. Bethel, the capital, has got, and Samaria, they've got golden calf worship going on. There's no place to worship in the northern kingdom. So the next best place for this man to take his first fruits offering is to Elisha, to the, to the school of, of prophets. The only problem is these 20 small loaves can't possibly feed 100 men. Until, of course, they do. They do. And the 20 loaves not only fill up these 100 men, there's some left over. Back in 1 Kings 17, God fed Elijah with these daily deliveries from the ravens. And he fed the widow of Zarephath, and he fed her son with this unending supply of not only oil, but flour. He is the God we've seen already in this book. He is the God who provides food in famine. And so in 2 Kings 4, we see that again. But look closer. Look closer. We are learning, again, so much more about God's work through these similar yet distinct miracles. We are learning that God is the one who reverses the curse of sin. God is the one who reverses the curse of sin. You heard Steve talk about that a little bit last week. You see it again here. And you see here that God will reverse the curse of sin through both purification and multiplication. Think about this. There are not supposed to be inedible plants that bring death. Back in the Garden of Eden, before humanity's fall into sin, there was only one tree we couldn't eat from. There was only one tree we couldn't eat from. Everything else was good. Everything else was fair game. The fact that there's death in the pot is the curse of sin. But we see here that God is, God is the one who purifies what sin has corrupted. God is the one who reverses the curse. And just as there aren't supposed to be inedible plants, there's not supposed to be scarcity Famine should not be a thing. Famine should not be a thing. In the Garden of Eden, there was abundance. And so the fact that humanity ever since has had to labor so hard for food and yet still faces famine and still faces food insecurity, that is the curse of sin. But we're seeing here that God is the one who multiplies. God is the one who takes even the little bit we can produce this side of the fall and can turn it into an abundance. Enough for us to eat and then some left over. It's no coincidence that that during his earthly ministry, Jesus will go on to feed the 5,000, which was probably more like 12,000 when you counted women and children. And he'll go on in another instance to feed the 4,000. And he'll do that with next to nothing, and he'll have an abundance left over. These miracles in 2 Kings 4 are anticipating those miracles of Jesus. And all of those miracles and all the miracles we're reading about today are anticipating a day when the curse of sin will be no more. These provisions of food in 2 Kings 4, they are tastes, quite literally, of a world without the curse, where God has purified all that sin has corrupted, where God has multiplied all that sin has made scarce. And this table up here, the Lord's table, 
which we're going to come to in just a moment. This is itself a taste of that day. In spite of our sin, through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has purified not only things in this world, but a people for his own possession. And he invites us as his people to come and eat, to feast upon his finished work in anticipation of that day that he will come again in glory and welcome us to his eternal table and invite us to feast on his abundance, which is an abundance that will never run out. Whenever you encounter repetition in the Bible, whenever it feels like deja vu, whenever you're tempted to, to read fast, pass it, to pass it, to gloss over it as if you've already heard it, and to think that the Bible or the miracles of the Bible are just kind of an endless loop, look closer. Look closer. I know this life gets weary sometimes. I know your faith and your efforts feel futile sometimes, like you're just spinning your wheels all the time and it's accomplishing nothing. I know that the kingdom of God feels like it stalls out and stagnates and like we're stuck in this spot that things are worse and not getting better. I would plead with you this morning in your own life, look closer. Look closer. Another provision of oil is showing us that God himself will be our redeemer and our ransom. Another resurrection is showing us that God not only raises the dead, he provides the son in the first place. And more provisions of food are showing us that God is not only willing to meet our daily needs, he is reversing the very curse of sin itself. Jesus has come to make the blessings of God flow, to make the purified, multiplied abundance of the kingdom of God flow as far as the curse is found. I was thinking about it this morning. I cannot wait to sit at that eternal table with you. I cannot wait to sit at the eternal table with you. And so until that day, today, lift your eyes, men and women, and look. Put your faith in the God who redeems and ransoms you. You are not stuck in a pointless, endless loop. You are caught up into the ever-advancing, ever-forward-moving kingdom and mission of God. May the fullness of it come soon. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. We see Jesus in this text. And as these miracles were anticipating him and his miracles, we now come today in this moment and we anticipate the day, Jesus, that you will come again. We long for you to make all things new. We long to sit at your eternal table together. And we are grateful for the taste of that day that we get to come and experience right now at this table. Help us to look closer in those moments and times of our lives where it feels like we're on pointless, endless loops, repeating itself without purpose. When your kingdom feels stalled out and stagnant, help us to look closer and help us to see how your kingdom is forever and your kingdom is ever moving forward. Pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.